First Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. I know I have a different text in the bulletin, but I, I thought as, as, as I labored in the Word this week that I wanted to bring a word of consolation and comfort to you from these two verses. I think there's a great deal here for us. So just two verses, chapter 5 in First Peter, verses 6 and 7. I'll read them. They'll read very quickly. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we pray that you would grant us the consolation of spirit that comes from recognition of your infinite and eternal love for us, Lord. These things are beyond us. We pray that your spirit would grant us understanding, grant us the ability to hear, to take to heart, to inwardly digest the word of God. We ask, Lord, that you would comfort your people this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm told by WebMD that there are common symptoms of anxiety disorders, and they include uh, feeling nervous, feeling helpless. I might add to that, feeling nauseous, feeling helpless, a sense of impending panic, danger, doom. Perhaps you felt doomed, utterly doomed. Increased heart rate, hyperventilation, sweating, trembling, obsessively thinking about the thing which has triggered the panic, fixating on the thing that has caused us in the moment uh, to be fearful. Well, these feelings of anxiety and panic can interfere with daily activities. They can be very, very difficult control, can, to control. They can become so self-consuming that it is the only thing you can think about. They can so debilitate the human spirit that in the end you're left almost like that primordial ooze from which we've come, immovable, unemotional, uh, broken down, uh, or so emotional that we simply cannot function. Uh, well, good news, WebMD has some counsel for you. Keep physically active. Of course, it's very hard to pull yourself up off of the the couch when you're overwhelmed, but keep physically active. Avoid alcohol and recreational drugs. Uh, Of course, many of us need to hear that. Uh, I'm joking. Uh, Quit smoking. Cut back on drinking. Uh, Use stress management, relaxation techniques. I'm going to try that the next time my dear wife is anxious. Uh, Honey, I want to lead you through some stress management and relaxation techniques. Uh, Make sleep a priority. Eat healthy foods. Learn about your disorder. Uh, that's what I'll do. I'll take her to the website that speaks specifically about the disorder that she has or speaks about depression, and we'll learn about it together. Stick to your treatment plan. Identify triggers. Keep a journal. Socialize. There was one thing missing in all of those directions. Nothing in that list will actually solve the problem that has triggered my anxiety in the first place. Nothing leads me to a solution for what troubles me. Nothing leads me ultimately to what will solve the problem that has me in this anxious condition that has left me depressed, fearful, worried, crippled by my fears. Well, P. 
Peter offers some better counsel here, I think, in the passages before us. These two little verses. And he gives two commands. Yes, he gives two commands, but he gives three consoling thoughts that will accompany, but also two things that will also tell us that God toward us is exercising continually. He commands, humble yourselves. He has two commands. Humble yourselves first, and secondly, cast your anxieties on him. Well, two commands, the first of which is humble yourselves. He he says, therefore, in verse 6, and it harkens back to the immediate context. When you hear, well, therefore, as as writers, as, as people engaged in reading, we've all read books, when we hear, therefore, that, that in some way connects us. It sends a hook into what just came before. And in verse 5, he said uh, to everyone, All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In other words, God is in a position of oppositional warfare against the proud. And yet he gives grace to the humble. In other words, he comes with a laver full of grace and he's pouring it out upon those who are humble and who have committed themselves into their, his care. And so that's what he says. He has quoted Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34. It's interesting that James in chapter 4, verse 6 also quotes the same passage. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Well, the Bible says a lot about what humility is, and I think we struggle with knowing what humility is. There are lots of people who walk the red carpet and and they they offer themselves and their humility. Oh, well, Uh, we've seen it. False humility that that wants in the worst way. uh, Go ahead and praise me uh, is really behind the statements that say, well, you know, I'm just not worthy. Um, humility is an interesting thing, and I think oftentimes we don't really recognize, nor do we know how to express or make use of real, clear, honest, genuine humility. Well, there are many biblical examples that we're that are given to us. Matthew 5, verse 3, Jesus refers to the poor in spirit, and he says, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I think what's in view are humbled people, people humbled by their circumstances, people lowered in their estimation of themselves, humbled over the things that have, to use modern language, triggered them into a position of fear and deep anxiety, the poor in spirit. Matthew 5, 5 and 7 and 9, blessed are the gentle for they shall inherit the earth. I think gentleness is a part of humility. I think compassion also is a part of humility. I think love is part of humility. Now, they are not disconnected, certainly, from each other. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. I will tell you that mercy flows, mercy flows from humility. Lastly, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. A peacemaker is someone who's not so much concerned about making sure that they're right or pridefully holding their position up, but rather are seeking a peace based upon a mutual agreement that involves humility. In all of those beatitudal statements from Jesus, there are marks of a humble soul. Jesus himself 
commends himself as an example in Matthew 11, verse 29. I am gentle and lowly or humble. Same word. I am gentle and humble in heart. Philippians 2.3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than once than yourselves. So there's a twofold thing involved in the Philippians passage. That is lowering my estimation, my self-estimate of who I am and what I contribute to society, to culture, to church, to life, to relationships, and exalt the contributions of others. That's humility. Or Colossians chapter 3, verse 12 and 13. It's those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility. You see the connection? Gentleness and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. Jesus expounded on humility in Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 5. He showed that the great, the greatest in the kingdom of God has humbled himself, humbled herself like a child. And of course, Peter has alluded already to humility in this past, in this book, in this letter. He says in verse 8 of chapter 3, to sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. Are you searching for humility? Do you wonder, how, how can I be humble? I, I want to be humble. I don't want to overestimate myself. I want to make more of others. Well, follow Jesus. We're told in Scripture we can do nothing apart from him. He said explicitly, without me, apart from me, you can do nothing. He didn't say you're all your efforts to make yourself righteous and all your efforts to do good things for God will come up short or that you'll reach a certain height and you need my help to get up to the higher reaches. No, he said, without me, you can do nothing. Now, it's right then when the human spirit says, well, I, I got myself out of bed and I, I made myself a bowl of cereal. And yesterday I just completed a work week. I worked all week long. I earned a paycheck. Look at all the things that I've done. And I would point you to God, who is the ultimate author and giver of all good things. How did you get the abilities that you have? Who gave you the breath that you breathe? Who got you out of bed in the morning and did not let your heart stop while you slept? Who kept your life and guarded you from the moment of your birth and brought you out of the vulnerability of an infancy into clear adulthood? Who gave you the gifts and the abilities to do the work that you do day by day? And who gave you the intellect and formed your mind and created your body and gave you the ability to continue to function for all these years? The Lord and giver of life. He is the one. Humility acknowledges, oh Lord, it is all of you. It is all of you. When we're not walking in humility, we are putting on a show. We are overestimating ourselves, putting ourselves forward and decreasing the reputations of others. And in doing that, our souls are in danger. I have a lengthy quote here from Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher. I love Charles Spurgeon. He says a lot about pride that I, I tried to put it in my own words, but I, I couldn't. I said, well, I've got to quote Spurgeon. So pride is so natural to fallen man, he says, that it springs up in his heart like weeds in a watered garden. 
or rushes by a flowing brook. It is an all-pervading sin and smothers all things like dust in the roads or flour in the mill. It's every touch as evil as the breath of the cholera fiend. We might say in our own time, as the as as the as the the most recent virus, the coronavirus, uh, does. <clears throat> Pride is as hard hard to get rid of as charlock from the furrows or weeds, or the American blight from the apple trees. If killed, it revives. If buried, it bursts the tomb. You may hunt down this fox and think you've destroyed it. And lo, your very exaltation is pride. None have more pride than those who dream that they are uh, that they are humble. And the fond conceit of their humility will prove to be pride in full bloom. It apes humility full well and is then most truly pride. Pride is a sin with a thousand lives. It seems impossible to kill it. It flourishes on that which should be its poison, glorying in its shame. It is a sin with a thousand shapes. By perpetual change, it escapes capture. Pride was man's first sin, and it will be his last. In the first sin that man ever committed, there was certainly a large admixture of pride, for he imagined that he knew better than his maker, and even dreamed that his maker feared that man might grow so great. There was certainly pride in the sin of Satan and pride in the sin of Adam. This is the torch which kindled hell and set the world on fire. Pride is a ringleader and captain among iniquities. It attains under the first three of Satan's champions. It is a daring and God-defying sin, a reigning divine justice as Cain did, challenging Jehovah to combat as Pharaoh did, or making self into God as Nebuchadnezzar did. It would murder God if it could, that it might fill his throne. That's the evil of pride. There's a process to humility, a higher estimation of our fellow believers, a destruction of personal pride and self, and to be ruthless with it, to refuse to be prideful, to always speak humbly of ourselves before others, not with a falsity, but with genuineness. We also have to seek the grace of God, which he gives to the humble, placing a higher estimation and priority on God's grace than personal pride and accomplishment. Yes, it it means that in the day-to-day we need to make a clear set of priorities in our lives that says it's more important to me that I walk with God relying utterly upon him than it is for me to to accomplish more in making more money, in in working more hours, in putting out more product, in doing more stuff. Or even having more rest, it's more important to me that God's grace is operative in my life. That has to be our clarion call. To yield to, to seek to be near to the one who is stronger than we ourselves. So humble yourselves, dear friends, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. And we'll say more in a moment about that mighty hand. We should put our confidence in living and loving and deciding and thinking and sleeping and working in in God alone. Complete dependence, absolute confidence, utter reliance, uh, complete assurance and complete awareness of our absolute insignificance apart from him. Yes, insignificance apart from him. If we don't have Christ don't we know that when we pass from this world, our loved, our loved ones, will they will mourn us. 
We'll leave behind something of a legacy. We'll leave behind money and support, and that's a good thing. But in the space of a year or so, your family will remember the anniversary, perhaps, of your death, and they'll be saddened. About five years after that, there will be a brief statement or a brief thought, and onward they will go. Ten years after, you will be largely forgotten with the occasional look at a picture. Oh, yes, that's so-and-so. But the truth is, it would be a very short time in comparison to eternity before you were forgotten. We are insignificant apart from God. Even the human beings who have accomplished the most in our world are insignificant before the glorious being who has placed the nebula in the heavens, who opens wormholes and, and brings out brand new stars that have been begun by the processes he has set in place. He is the one, he is the most significant. He is the only significant thing in all the universe. And placed within each and every one of us is the image of God. We are an analogous representation of God, and he himself living within us makes us significant. Some of us have placed our confidence in the flesh. Perhaps we're bucking against this very thought. You're telling me that the life I've lived is worthless? No, not at all only that it is insignificant apart from God and his son, only that the life that you've lived has been completely by the grace of God. All that you've accomplished has been enabled by his hand. All glory belongs to God in the highest. Pride comes to die before his authorship and will. And so we must humble ourselves before him, but we must also cast, secondly, cast our anxieties on him. And this is where Peter tells us we must, in verse 7, we must cast our anxieties on him because he cares for us. We'll say more about that thought in a moment. But this is not a New Testament concept that has no Old Testament roots. It's all of a sudden brand new. No, in Psalm 37, 5, commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will do this. He will make your righteousness shine like the dawn, the justice of your cause like the noonday sun. Psalm 55, 22, cast your cares on the Lord. He will sustain you. He will never let the righteous fall. Or Matthew 6, 25 and 32, Jesus is speaking. Don't worry about your life or about your body. Your heavenly Father knows what you need. Philippians 4, 6, do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. The word that Peter uses here for anxiety, cast your, cast your anxieties on him. The word anxiety is to be drawn in different directions. Doesn't that sound so apt? To be drawn in different directions. So here is a whole person and portions of themselves, their affections, their reasoning ability, their thoughts, uh, their words, their actions. They're going in different directions. They're being pulled in every which way. And they're paralyzed by this almost because so many different things are being pulling or, or are pulling upon them. Fears and emotions that pull us apart and fear inducing circumstances from every direction. A lack of assurance and confidence in God also leads to greater anxiety and a lack of faith deepens it even further still. We're anxious about a lot of things. 
the appointment we may have tomorrow or the next day, whether or not we'll have the time in the course of this next week to do all the things that we wish to do, whether or not the dinner is going to be ready on time at precisely 1230 this afternoon as we go home, or whether or not our loved ones really love us, whether our marriage will actually fade or be sustained, whether our children will still be around when we get older, what our life will, what our lives will look like when we age just a little bit more and the knees and the elbows wear out just a little bit more, and whether or not we'll sell that thing that we need to sell in order to make the next paycheck or whether or not we'll be able to hold on to our job when the company is downsizing. There are a thousand different anxieties and fears. Never mind the own inter- our own internalized things. We're afraid of our own condemning thoughts. We're fearful over the results of our sins. We long to be free of sin, and yet, like Paul says in Romans 7, we still struggle with it, and the good that we would do, we do not do, and the evil that we would not do, we do. So many things pull on us, and anxiety is simply being pulled aside in every different direction. And the passage here before us says, bring them to God. Bring them to Him. Lay them out before Him. In other words, lay out, as it were, in the Old Testament, as as the saint approached the altar before God and laid out his concerns, or Hannah laid out her concerns of childishness or childlessness before God, Lay them out before them, him. Give them to him. Lay them out before him in prayer. Spread out your hands and stop gloating over these things, fixating on your troubles. Give them to him. That's the command of God in his word. Give your anxieties to him. Cast them onto him. Throw them to him. And then Google them incessantly until you satisfy every fear. No, it doesn't say that. Although we do that, don't we? We all do. Cast them on him. Throw them to him. Paul's anxiety is found in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 28. And he says, I'm concerned for you. There's daily pressure on me. And I have anxiety for all the churches. And so anxiety, to some extent, is a part of life. And it's not sin in and of itself to be anxious and to be caught up in something. All of a sudden, Johnny just fell off his bike and he broke his leg. Well, that's an anxiety-inducing event. And it depends on how you handle it and what you do. Anxiety is part of life. But what do we do when it comes? The bill shows up in the mail and it's more than we have In our paycheck, what do we do? Anxiety is a natural response. And we begin to think, what do I do? How do I deal with the threat? What am I going to do to to take steps to provide for this need? It's what we do with our anxiety that involves sin. When we consider all the consolatory statements of God's power and his care for us, and the fact that his mighty arm is engaged in our deliverance, why would we do anything less than to give it to God? Why are we so prone to depend upon ourselves? Why are we so prone to to internalize our anxieties and fears, take them into ourselves rather than casting them on him? We take them into our bosom and we hold them there. And they kill us, but we cannot separate ourselves from them. And yet here is this passage that says, no, Let them go and put them on God. 
The thing is that we must do all that we can to bring uh, to, 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 with our resources and means and, and gifting that God has given to us and, and then bring it to him in prayer, pleading with him to act and to bless our work and to calm our hearts. And then we get up from the prayer and we say, Lord, I'm, I'm going to leave the anxiety that I'm feeling with you. Lord, I've done all that I know how to do. I am anxious and fearful. My fears are crippling. It's hard for me to take another step. Help me and I will trust you. Here's my problem, Lord. Help me. And then at the end of all of it, and we're telling our, our, our Father what we need, we get up, we take a deep breath, and we work to leave our anxieties with him. I think there are three reasons why we can do that and why it's so easy for a believer to do, even though, yes, it is hard. But it can be easier. And the reasons why are contained here, even in these two same verses. One is that God is mighty. It's interesting what Peter says. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Now, be careful that what, what he's saying here is not that God has a mighty hand engaged in your deliverance. If you humble, your, humble yourselves uh, based upon your work, he will then engage in caring for you. No, that's not what he's saying. Rather, in, 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 the, in, in the ways in which these verbs and, and uh, the, the, the adverbs and all the other language works here in the grammar of the Greek, the truth is what he's saying is that the mighty hand of God is in fact the source that is causing us the anxiety in the first place. You get that. What did he say at the end of chapter 14, or 4? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, all, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. The mighty hand of God is involved in disciplining, forming, refining his people, refining our faith so that it will be able to endure through the fire of persecution and difficulty. God is engaged in, with his mighty hand over us, not, not pummeling and beating us, but rather hammering and forming and making and cutting away all that is dross and burning away all that is useless and making us beautiful in his sight, perfecting that which he has begun carrying out that work in us that he intends to bring to full completion. That is God's goal to make you holy. It is God's goal to make you like himself. He will complete that work in heaven, but he has begun that work now. And so the Apostle Peter, who is speaking to a group of people who are referred to as elect exiles, who are struggling because they are exiled away from positions of family and of nurturing relationships. They are alone in the world. They have been called aliens. In other words, they don't belong here. They belong to the kingdom of God. One day they're going to live with the Lord in heaven for all eternity, and they're mindful of that, and they are suffering. They are suffering. They are suffering and being persecuted and Peter even refers to fiery trials that they have begun to endure. And he's writing to them and he's saying, look, the hand of God is involved in all of these things. 
God is refining his church. He is he is saving souls. He is causing his name to be glorified in the world. And of course, of course we could look years later at the Roman Empire that, that committed through Charlemagne to at least a broad governance or, 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 or societal embrace of Christianity. How did God bring that about through the earlier stages of the blood of martyrs who died in the, the great Colosseums under Nero and other emperors like him? And eventually God would bring a great harvest from Rome and its citizens that many would believe and be saved from their sins. And many were converted and believed even through the blood of the martyrs that was spilled in the Colosseum. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. God is mighty, isn't he? It's Old Testament language, Exodus chapter 3, verse 19. No, but I, God is speaking to Moses, but I know that the king of Egypt will not permit you to go except under compulsion. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles, which I shall do in the midst of it. And after that, he will let you go. And until that day happened, wasn't it true that his people, all of his people went through great grave hardship and suffering? Weren't they whipped and beaten? Didn't didn't their lot worsen? Weren't they required now to get their own straw, get their own water, get everything that they needed in order to make the things which they were making? They actually complained against God. They complained against Moses. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Because God is at work doing far more than we could ever ask, imagine, or think. Because God's ways are higher than our ways, and His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And it's not all about our immediate relief. It isn't. It is about God's glory and God's timely deliverance when He is pleased to do it. Which brings us to our second statement concerning God and our consolation. God will exalt you in due time. God is mighty, yes, he can address every trouble or trial we have ever we ever will encounter, but God God will exalt you. God will exalt you. He will exalt you according to his own time, at the proper time. And the proper time means not according to your and my expectations of time. And God's fulfillment of all that we want done. We may think, I'm out of time. I have no time left. There's no time left to address my need. The day is coming. The, 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 the threshold is here. I can't go any further, but I, I found that I'm 55 years old and the Lord has always made certain that just in time he is provided, he is sustained, he is protected, he has kept and preserved me, body and soul, my loved ones. And even when he takes... Summoned to himself, even when tragedy comes, I'm certain even in that, that God is good. And that he always does good things. And that he will exalt me, and he will exalt his son, and he will exalt all my dead loved ones who have died in Christ at the proper time. He gives grace to the humble. That's the promise of verse 5. He's opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The promise of verse 6 is he will lift you up in due time. There is uncertainty regarding time, but not with regard to the 
act. In other words, we may say, you know, the Lord has not yet delivered me from my circumstances that have caused me anxiety, but but I'm certain that he will in the proper time. We wait on the Lord's mighty hand to deliver. Mary, in her wonderful song, she sang, He has scattered those who are proud, but he has lifted up the humble. This is God's response to those who humble themselves before him. God will lift you up. Psalm 3.3, But you, you, O Lord, are a shield around me, my glory, and the one who lifts my head. Lastly, the great consolation here, the third consolation we find in this passage is in verse 7. Casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. I'll tell you, this is my deepest consolation. This is your and my deepest consolation in yielding to God and being humble before him under his mighty hand. How easy it is to be patient and humble when we know when we are convinced, when we have come to full understanding and absolute assurance, He cares for me. He cares for me. This is our deep consolation to know that God cares for us. Some of us, some of us have forgotten this. We, we frequently forget and we are absolutely convinced that God does not care for us at times. We're convinced, well, the Lord doesn't love me and he doesn't care for me like he does other people because they seem to do well. They seem to advance when I want to advance. I don't seem to get any place and I'd love my life to be different than it is. And others seem to have found what I long for. But for whatever reason, I continue to go without. Well, it doesn't mean that God doesn't care for you. He works all things well. We must never question this. Even when we forget it, we need to be reminded from the Lord, even when we forget it yet again, we judge him often by the difficulty of our circumstances or the time we must wait for that proper time to be revealed. But let this consolation rest upon us that he cares for us. Once you become aware of the fact that God has loved us, and has provided for us a Savior, we must also simultaneously be convinced, my God who has given his Son for me, cares for me. Once we are convinced that he cares for us, we must remind ourselves that his care and his love never can be separated from us. It will never cease. I am convinced that neither hell, nor death, nor life nor powers, nor principalities, height, nor depth, nor any living thing or any other thing, created thing, can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. He cares for you. He cares for you. Let that console your every anxiety and fear. He cares for me. And then humble yourself under his hand and await the revealing of his proper time. But go in the full consolation of it. Let it wear as a smile upon your face. Let it rest as peace upon your soul. Let it wash over all the fears of your mind. He cares for me. The infinite God cares for me. God Almighty, whose right hand delivered the people of Israel from Egypt. He cares for me. 
Oh, Lord God, we thank you that you care for us. Lord, show us, lead us into this delightful contemplation that our God cares for us. Lord, we ask your forgiveness of our sins, our doubt, our fears that so cripple us, so take us over. We ask, Lord, that you would enable us to stand fearless in the love of God, fearless in the caring nature of our God, fearless, O God, before your mighty hand knowing that the mighty hand that we so fear at times is wielded by a God who loves us. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would help us, lead us, enable us. Command what you will, but grant, O oh God, the ability and the means by, what, by which we may carry out what you have commanded. Enable us, O oh God, to take our anxieties and our fears and to cast them upon you. Show us your almighty power. Convince us of your great ability. Show us your mighty hand in deliverance. And even in suffering, O God, help us to entrust ourselves to our faithful creator who does only and always what is good. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.